I am so glad you could join us in week three of Where is God in All This? Today, I want to talk to you about how to be a friend in a crisis. If you would, just bow your heads with me right now. Let's look to the Lord together. Father, I sincerely believe that this is the message for this hour, that, Lord, we really need to lean in to the truth that we're going to learn today. Some of us, Lord, are going to hear this and, and be really challenged by it personally. Others are going to be very encouraged because they've had questions and doubts and didn't know what to do with them. But wherever it is that we encounter you today, I just pray that you're going to have complete freedom in our hearts and our minds to do what you do so well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. James Dobson years ago wrote this really excellent book called When God Doesn't Make Sense. And in that book, he talks about a pastor by the name of Jim Conway. And his daughter had a cancerous tumor in her leg. Uh, he and his wife prayed and prayed that God would do a miraculous healing, do something to help her. But in the end, the only way to save his daughter's life was for the leg to be amputated. In the immediate aftermath of that, a church member came to Pastor Conway and said, Pastor, I think I know why God allowed this to happen. It was so that our church would experience a revival. The pastor looked at this church member and said, so what's God going to do when the revival passes? Chop off Becky's other leg, then maybe her arm and her other arm? He then responded to the readers and he said this, I couldn't explain why Becky had to lose her leg but I knew the answers being given weren't right. He then added, when you start reaching for puny answers like that, it dehumanizes those who suffer and insults God. You know, Pastor Conway faced what many other people have faced in life, to be suffering, to be going through an unimaginable hell as you watch a loved one endure something awful, only to have someone offer words that are like salt in an open wound. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen. I've been in emergency rooms across this city, and I've heard people say this to loved ones who are facing life and death decisions. I've seen it happen in the immediate aftermath of a national disaster, and I've also seen it happen at funerals a lot. One of the reasons I've always recommended don't do open mics at funerals, because all it takes is for one person to make some kind of offside, unhelpful comment. And then all of a sudden, everything that's beautiful that's been said about your loved one, the hundreds of other things that have been said, you forget all about those things and you fixate on this one unkind thing that a person said. Something that they said to make themselves feel better, but made no one else feel better. Just because someone feels like they need to blurt that stuff out to people in pain without thinking through the implications of what they're saying or even pausing to think, maybe I don't know enough about this situation to even make a comment like that. I'm sorry, but that happens, and it happens all the time. Now, I tell you these stories because the message I want to share with you today is just like that. It's the story we read about in the book of Job. And this story is about the messy side of life, where trite answers are unwelcome and meaningful ones aren't always clear. So my first point I call introducing Job. Let me begin by saying this is truly a unique book. 
So in the Old Testament, there's five poetic books or five wisdom books, and they are Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Song, and the book of Job. Of these five books, Job is the one that's starkly different from the others. You see, the others, their wisdom comes in these short, pithy kind of statements, wisdom statements. But the book of Job is one long, protracted story chocked full of wisdom. Job most likely lived before the time of Moses and probably during the time of Abraham or sometime even before that. We know this in part because there's no references to any of the famous personalities of Israel's history, like Abraham, Jacob, or Isaac. There's no mention of Israel's slavery, then deliverance from Egypt. There's no mention of God's law or the temple. In other words, there's nothing Jewish about this book. So it's pre-Jewish history. Job worships Jehovah God in a time before God had constituted a people unto himself. Because of that, he makes the perfect representation of all of us because he's not aligned with some particular people. Of course, the main focus of this book is suffering, but it's more than that. It's also about whether one man, having lost everything, will continue to trust God. The book of Job is likely the oldest book in the Bible. I don't think that it's by accident that the oldest book in Scripture deals with the oldest dilemma of humankind, and that is why do bad things happen to good people? Now, it's interesting. We can't be absolutely sure on this one, but a strong case has been made by linguists that Job's name is actually an acronym which forms a question. And the question is, where is the Father? Now, if that's true and multiple sources indicate that it is, then it's a perfect setup for this book because that's the question the book is asking. Where is the Father? Or as we've called this series, where's God in all of this? Now, Job lives through a worst case scenario. You would call it literally a living hell. Everything's gone wrong. Instead of his life being showered with blessings, it's like bad things happen in a monsoon. The question is, how is Job going to respond? Is he going to trust God? Is he going to continue to have faith or is he going to abandon it all? So let me give you a quick synopsis of the book. Beginning chapter one, verse one, it says, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, in the first five verses of chapter one, we're told three things about Job. Number one, he's a righteous man. Number two, he's a rich man. And third, he is a religious man. The man has it all. He's both rich and godly, a rare combination. No one had a bad word to say about Job. He's as good a man as you'll find anywhere in the Bible. The guy's a saint. And that's not somebody's opinion of Job. That's what God says about Job. Early in the story, we're introduced to Job's adversary. Now, in Hebrew, the word is hasatan. In English, we call him Satan. Now remember this because the scripture is really clear on it. All the bad things that happen in Job's life come directly from the evil one. Satan is unloading the artillery of hell against Job. So right off the bat, we're told about four messengers of misfortune. First, the Sabaeans come and they steal all of Job's livestock and they kill his servants. Now the Sabaeans are Arab Bedouins, but that's just the beginning. Next, a wildfire destroys his sheep and the servants watching over them. Then the Chaldeans steal his camels and kill those servants 
And finally, a strong wind collapses the house where all of Job's children are gathered and they all die in the tragedy. To make matters worse, all of these tragedies come one on top of another. Three times the text says, while he was still speaking. So literally, while he's speaking, while he's responding to the bad news he just heard, another knock comes to the door to tell him more bad news. In one day, in one single afternoon, everything of value and importance to him vanished. His wealth is gone. His empire is crumbled. His workers are murdered. All of his children are killed. Just about the time he thinks it can't possibly get any worse, it does. We're also shown that he is a man full of faith and questions. Now, even though Job's faith has taken a major hit, it doesn't waver. So get this, the first two chapters of the book of Job show Job as a man full of faith. The next chapters through the end of the book show him as a man full of questions, which tells me just because you have faith doesn't mean your questions go away. And just because you have questions doesn't mean you don't have faith. There are a lot of things I still question. To have questions means you're thinking. Questions are not necessarily detrimental to faith. Instead, what's detrimental to faith is when I ignore my questions or I try to hide from them. I believe. I trust God. I know enough about God and have seen him at work in my life to keep on believing in him. I know him and I know how he's loved me and his grace has met me at my worst. And because of that, I hang on when I have questions. Questions are okay, even expected. It's like the book of Jude says in verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt. He doesn't say rebuke those with doubts because people who are wrestling with matters of faith, they need to be met with mercy, not judgment. Now, years ago, I found this really excellent book written by a guy named Gary Parker, and it's called The Gift of Doubt. I was intrigued by the title, so I read it. It's a great book. In that book, he made this comment. If faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its power? In my own pilgrimage, if I have to choose between a faith that stared doubt in the eye and made it blink, or a naive faith that has never known the firing line of faith, I will choose the former every time. Choosing faith is never going to be easy in life. And by the way, Job is never given the answers that he seeks. You and I, as the reader of this story, we understand more than what Job does, but Job is never given the information that you as a reader have. But still, look at his response. Job stood up, he tore his robe in grief, then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. You know what? Anybody can sing songs to God, songs of praise on the good days, but can we sing those same songs on the bad ones? Job worships through the storm, which tells us a lot about worship, doesn't it? I mean, the best place to find a worshiper is not on Sunday morning. Anybody can worship on a Sunday morning. The test of worship is not whether they're doing the kind of music you like, whether it's a killer song list, or whether all the singers are prayed up and packed up and ready to go up. If you can't worship in church on Sunday morning, surrounded by God's people, you're dead. You're a rock. Let me tell you where you find out if you're really a worshiper. When the bottom of your world falls out. When everything you thought you knew you could count on is gone. When you don't understand why everything hurts so much. What do you do then? Will you continue to worship before your maker, your father, 
You see, true worship isn't experienced in Sunday morning in church. It happens in the crucible of everyday living. Job kept on worshiping and praying over and over again. He lifts his gaze to God. And I'll tell you something else about this book. Job is the only one in the entire book who prays. His friends talk about God, but only Job talks to God. And that leads us to this, how not to be a friend in a crisis. Let me tell you right up front. The book of Job is about pain, but mainly it's about how we respond to the pain of others. It's an indictment on people who have pat answers for everything. It's about what do you say to people who are hurting? It's about the limitations of our understanding and what God thinks about people who hurt others who are hurting in his name. Now, here's, here's where we're introduced to Job's friends. When Job's three friends heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Now, I believe Job's friends sincerely wanted to help him. I, I believe that. I believe they meant well. I believe their intentions were good. But what they ended up saying to Job had the opposite effect on him. So much so that the enemy actually used what they said to further discourage Job and push him into the pit of despair. Now let's look more closely at what they had to say. There's the first guy, and his name is Eliphaz. He's the guy who says, God told me to tell you. You see, Eliphaz represents folks who are spiritual and who see spirituality as an equation or a formula. To Eliphaz, sin equals suffering, and righteousness equals prosperity. And because he believes so sincerely in this formula, he judges everybody by that standard. Eliphaz believes there's a direct correlation between the degree of someone's sin and the amount of suffering they endure. So the worse your suffering, the badder you must be as a sinner, the more you deserve it. To make matters worse, Eliphaz claims to speak for God. Listen to this. The truth was given to me in secret, as though whispered in my ear. It came to me in a disturbing vision at night when people are in a deep sleep. Eliphaz is claiming that what he's about to say to Job is what God had revealed to him in a dream or a vision. Now, here's what I've learned over the years. When someone comes to me and begins a conversation with, God told me to tell you, I'm immediately suspicious. Not because God can't give somebody else a message intended for you. That does happen, and it happens in Scripture. But most times when that happens, it fails to meet the biblical criteria for that. Because if you study Scripture, and you find when God gives a message to somebody for someone else, then there's always two circumstances under which that occur. The first one is when your heart is so hard and your understanding so darkened that you're not listening to God. At a time like that, God will send somebody with a message to make sure you get it. It happened to King David through the prophet Nathan because David's heart had become hardened. He was not listening to God. So God sent someone to get a message through to him. But like I said earlier, Job is praying. In fact, he's the only one who's praying in this entire book. Not Job's friends, only Job. So this criteria doesn't even apply. You know, in the early days of this church, I had someone tell me in their home, said, God told me to tell you, you're out of the will of God for starting this church, for starting Spring Creek. Now you need to know something about me. I'm not intimidated by those kind of people. And so when she said that, I looked her in the eye and I said, well, that's funny because I talked to him this morning. He didn't say anything about that to me. Instead, what he told me is he well pleased with me. 
You see, when you have a good relationship with God and you're speaking to him on a regular basis, God doesn't need somebody to send a word to you to correct you. Here's a second circumstance under which God might give a message to somebody else for you, and that is encouragement to confirm his leadership and direction that he's already given you. In other words, God just wants to provide for you another level of assurance that you're already on the right track. In scripture, it's always one of those two circumstances. If it doesn't fit in those circumstances, it's not of God. So let's talk about the real reason people pretend to have secret messages from God for you. It's to control you. I mean, let's face it. I mean, if I tell you, God told me to tell you something, it's kind of the ultimate trump card because I've got a direct line to God and he's given me your answer. Now, fortunately, Job is spiritually discerning enough to see through all of this. Eliphaz really wasn't concerned with Job. Eliphaz was concerned with Eliphaz. And as a result, in uncanny insight, Job says this to him. Now you too have proved to be of no help. You see something dreadful and are afraid. Job basically tells Eliphaz, you have a theology that's rooted in fear. And what is Eliphaz's fear? His fear is, if God might do this to someone like Job, someone he likes, then he might do it to me too. If bad things can happen to anybody, then that means they could happen to me. So Eliphaz is doing everything in his power to explain away Job's pain, to offer a legitimate reason as to why Job is suffering so that Eliphaz can sleep well at night knowing that he's not going to be next. Sometimes we're like Eliphaz. What we say to people is meant not so much to help them as it is to minimize our own discomfort with what they're going through. I'm so terrified by your situation that I manufacture reasons as to why it's happening to you. Now, while we're on this subject of bad things to say to people who are suffering, let me share with you one of the most misused verses in the Bible. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has taken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, first, you just need to know this verse has nothing at all to do with pain, loss, or grief. This verse is about temptation, and it only applies to temptation. But people quote this verse all the time to people who've lost children, who've been diagnosed with cancer, or who faced a catastrophic loss. God won't put on you more than you can bear. Maybe you've heard that. Number one, that implies that God has put this on you. And number two, it implies if you were weaker, you wouldn't be suffering. Harriet Schiff lost her son during an operation to correct a congenital heart defect. Her pastor came to her after the son's death and said, I know this is a painful time for you, but I know you'll get through it because God never sends more of a burden than we can bear. God only let this happen to you because he knows you're strong enough to handle it. So she looked at her pastor and said, so if I were a weaker person, Robbie would still be alive. You see, that's the implication of this verse when you quote it and misuse it out of context. Well, Job's friends aren't through. Next, we're introduced to Bildad. I call him Mr. Holier Than Thou. Bildad's name actually means son of contention. So this is a guy who lives for an argument. Bildad never acknowledges Job's pain. He doesn't even mention it. Instead, he minimizes it and discounts it. 
Nothing Job feels matters to Bildad. Listen to this. How long will you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind. Let me tell you something. There's not one thing that comes out of this guy's mouth where you can imagine a tear in his eye. It's one of the most unkind cuts of all. Bildad looks at Job and tells him that the death of his children is indisputable evidence of their sin and proof of God's justice. Listen to his words. Your children must have sinned against him, against God, so their punishment was well-deserved. Feelings just don't even matter to Bildad. But what's most troubling about Bildad are the three little stories, vignettes, that he tells to Job to illustrate his problem. The first one is the parable of the papyrus. So he says, you know, if a reed grows up overnight without water, it has the appearance of being a lively plant. But when the sun rises in the heat of the day, it will wither and die under the rays of the scorching sun. In other words, it looks healthy, but it's not. Then he tells him the parable of the spider's web, that a spider's web looks strong and secure, but if someone leans up against it, it immediately collapses. It can't hold up. In other words, it looks strong, but it's not. Then he tells him the parable of the gourd. Now, gourds are a type of plant that have roots that snake along the top of the ground, looking for nooks and crannies between rocks. And although they look really well watered and green, when they die, they leave no permanent roots. In other words, Job is like the gourd. He prospers in his season, but when he's gone, he's going to leave no evidence, going to vanish without a trace of his existence because he's all form and no substance. So when you hear those three stories, what do they have in common? Well, Bildad is saying, I may not know what your sins are because you appear to be a really good guy, a godly kind of person, but something's going on beneath the surface I can't see. You look healthy, but you're not. Bildad's explanation for, Joab, for Job's suffering is to suggest that Job has actually been living a lie. You see, sometimes people try to explain away suffering by trying to prove that they're better than you. Now then there's Zophar. Now he's going to shame Job into submission. Zophar is just mean and judgmental. Uh, he, he enters a debate and he goes straight for the jugular. Basically what he says is, Job, God is letting you off easy. Listen to this. An empty-headed person won't become wise any more than a wild donkey can bear a human child. Zophar goes for the biggest, most effective tool in the arsenal of verbal combat, and that's shame. When I absolutely, positively want to shut you down, when I feel like I'm losing, and you might just have a point, the most effective way to neutralize what you're saying is to shame you. You see, it's one thing to attack what someone says or does, or to debate that. But Zophar makes this personal. He makes it about Job, and that's a tactic of shame. Now, thankfully, Job refused to be shamed into silence. Listen to his rebuttal. You people really know everything, don't you? And when you die, wisdom will die with you. Well, I know a few things myself, and you're no better than I am. So Job, what he does here is he takes the offensive. He says, you may judge me. You might try to shame me into silence, but I know the truth of what's going on here. You're no better than me. Now, it's amazing to me how Job is able, even in the midst of all of this difficulty, even with all of his friends aligned against him, with all these horrible, mixed up, wrong messages, how he refuses to be intimidated by their manipulation. This is incredibly difficult to do, to have all of your friends on one side and you stand strong on the other. How could he be right 
and everyone else wrong. Well, there's one more friend I want to briefly mention, and it's Elihu. The best way to describe this guy is I've got nothing to say, but that's not going to stop me from saying it. You've probably known a few people like that. Well, Elihu, he doesn't show up until chapters 32 through 37. Evidently, he's somebody who's been standing by, listening in, eavesdropping on this conversation. Maybe he's a fourth friend. Maybe he's a neighbor. Most scholars think he was probably the youngest of all, which is why he spoke last. Now, Elihu seems to be more confident than all the others combined. He tells Job, God does all these things to a man twice, even three times, to turn back his soul from the pit that the light of life might shine on him. In other words, what he's telling Job is what you're experiencing right now is just kind of a warning shot over the bow, Job. It can get worse. You see, Elihu thinks he knows a lot more than what he does. He's really got nothing new to add to this conversation. In fact, when God shows up at the end of this book and he addresses Job and he addresses the friends, he doesn't even mention this guy. That's how insignificant his contribution has been. So get this. Job's friends spend almost the entire book, 35 chapters worth, arguing with Job and arguing away his suffering. But in the end, they only prove that human wisdom has run out of answers, and that's what sets the stage for God himself to speak into the situation. Not once in anywhere in the book of Job do Job's would-be counselors leave any room that they might be wrong, might not have all the facts, that they are human and imperfect. Instead, they make a lot of statements like these. I've observed it, we've examined it, and it is true. What they say, they say with the utmost confidence, as if it were the final word on the matter. There's no humility, there's no sympathy. They just knew, they knew what was right, and what really is so tragic, what is so sad in this, is Job, when he refuses to buy into their flawed logic, they do what these kind of people always do. They say, if you reject us, you're rejecting God. Now, at the end of the book, we read that God is angry with Job's friend. And he says, they had not spoken of me what was right, as my Job, servant Job has. God tells all three men to go to Job, apologize for what they've said, offer burnt offerings for their forgiveness, and ask Job to pray for them. But that leads to a really, really important question. Why does this book spend so much time on wrong answers? I mean, the book is 42 chapters long, 35 of those chapters explaining to Job why all these things are happening to him are his fault. At the end of the book, God makes it clear that everything they said was not right. But it makes you wonder, why would God allow so many chapters of this book to be filled with so much bad theology and misinformation? And that leads to the most important discovery about the book of Job. You and I are these guys. The cumulative effect of reading this book from cover to cover is Job's story should make us less quick to judge, slower to explain the suffering of others. It should make us think twice before we ever judge a victim. Now, our nation is deeply troubled right now, as it should be, at the senseless killing of George Floyd by a police officer who kept his knee on his neck until he died. But have you noticed in the aftermath of that, how many people run to dig up dirt on George Floyd? It's another example of victim blaming. It's another example of trying to justify something that can't be justified. And we do victim blame, don't we? We do it all the time. 
we take pleasure in judging others who are suffering. Sometimes we relish the way we put our tweet out there for the world to see about the fall of some other supposedly great leader or what we post in a Facebook comment. How often do we do this even in our own family or among our friends? I know why their kids are so messed up. I know why he got all strung out on drugs. I know why they got jailed. I know why she got pregnant outside of marriage. You know, maybe we don't know the people even closest to us to make these judgments. Maybe because they're our friends, we assume too much. And more importantly, maybe we don't know as much about God as we think we do. Maybe we don't have an inkling to know how God really feels about this. Maybe don't, we don't know what he's doing in every situation. Maybe what is happening is not the judgment of God, but the work of the evil one. Maybe God is already involved in this situation in ways you can't know. Maybe God is the one redeeming it, not causing it. You see, I think after spending 35 of 42 chapters with a bunch of guys who thought they spoke for God but didn't, that that should humble each and every one of us. It should make us pause. And in the end, what to say, I never want God to look at me and say, you were part of the problem, not the solution. The very fact that God feels compelled to show up at the end and speak tells you that no one's doing a good job of speaking for him. So let's look at how the story ends. Number one, Job is vindicated. First, God says Job spoke the truth about him. Listen to this. He says it in two places in verse 7 and verse 8 of chapter 42. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So twice in this account, God reminds Job's friends, you're not speaking truth. Job is speaking truth. This is something new. We didn't know this up to now. Up to this point, the entire book has been aimed at pointing out how Job is so wrong because that's all his friends are saying. His friends have called him stubborn and pig-headed for not confessing. Then God shows up and says, the only one around here telling the truth about me is Job. And then there's this. God asked Job to pray for his friends. He says, my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. God tells Job's friends, I will listen and honor his prayer for you. Now let that sink in. You've been so wrong about me that I need someone to pray for you and I'll listen to what they have to say about you, but I don't want to hear it from you. Talk about the shoe being on the other foot. I mean, the ones who thought they spoke for God need to have someone speak to God on their behalf. Now, it's amazing to me that Job feels no malice. There's no resentment against these guys. How many of us would be like that? I mean, how many times have we been bad-mouthed? And not only do we not pray for those people, we want to make sure that they never forget what they've said about us. But not Job. He prays for them. In Job's prayer, we're actually reminded of another innocent sufferer who prayed for those who taunted him in his hour of need. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Job, he's vindicated. But in addition, Job is restored. The book of, book of Job ends with these wonderful words. The Lord blesses the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter, he named Jemima, the second, Keziah, and the third, Karen Hapuch. Nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man full of years. Now, at the end of his life, God 
doubles his portion, literally doubles everything he had before. What I find most intriguing about the end of this book is that we're told the name of Job's daughters and not the names of his sons. Now listen to this simple fact. In the Old Testament, there's 1,426 names of individual mention, of which only 111 are women. That's less than 8%. But what that tells us is the Bible was written during a time of patriarchy, a time when men's rights ruled supreme and women had very little in terms of rights that these women are mentioned by name and not the sons, says a lot about how much they're loved, valued, and respected by their father. But it's also likely we're told their name because they shared in the inheritance. Again, something without parallel in the ancient world. His daughters were his delight, beautiful in every way, and Jemima, of course, became famous for her pancake syrup. Now, the book is not a lesson. This book, the book of Job, is not a lesson on how to suffer and come out on top. Why bad things happen to good people is not addressed in any of the things that God says. At the end of this book, it must be acknowledged that there's no full satisfactory answer as to the problem of innocent suffering. But I really believe that the primary reason this book was written is to challenge us who like to speak for God. Now, the final thing we see about Job, and this is amazing to me, is that he's compensated. I'm not talking about reward. I'm not talking about financially. I'm not talking about the restoration of his wealth or his servants or any of that. Suffering can make us bitter or better. For many people, suffering leads to amazing insight, not necessarily answers, but insights. Pain is the crucible through which insights develop. It's the room through which new understanding is born. You see, we see life through a totally different lens when we're hurting, don't we? We understand things about people that we've never seen before. And Job, in the midst of his suffering, has some amazing insights, like this one. At least there's hope for a tree. If a tree is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. What Job sees is that nature renews itself. A tree can grow again even after it's been cut down. If nature can do this, isn't it reasonable to assume that we, who are so much more valuable than nature, made in the image of our Creator, that we could do this too? Is there more to life than just the here and now? Why can't we also rise again? You see, Job's pain is leading to insights that are not developed anywhere in the Old Testament like this, but only in the New Testament with the hope of the resurrection. Here's another. Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Now the remarkable thing that Job discovers here is he envisions a second figure in heaven, one who would be his advocate before God. His breakthrough is a belief that That this life, that this world and the brokenness of this planet requires a heavenly friend, an advocate. No one in ancient Israel thought these thoughts before Job. No one even whispered about them or wrote about them. There must be a go-between, an advocate, someone who understands us, gets us, and pleads our case before God. And of course, we're told about that advocate in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. One other I want to share with you. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. The Redeemer, that God is a God who saves. This 
is something that was revealed to the Israelites after their deliverance from Egypt, after passing through the waters. It's the first time God is called a redeemer. But many years before that, Job thought it and he wrote it down. He takes what is and he makes something good of it. That redeemer will one day stand upon the earth. Not just God in the sky in the sweet by and by, but a God who lives among us in the brokenness of this planet. Job sees what no man has ever seen before. Pain exacts a price from each and every one of us, but it often compensates us with understanding and insight. I have found some of the most beautiful souls and some of the most precious wisdom on this planet among people who've been suffering, who have seen, experienced brokenness, who've gone through awful things we would not wish on our worst enemy. You see, your pain can be a prison or a prison. If it's a prison, it can capture you and can render you powerless. If it's a prison, it begins to refract light and gives beauty to everything around it. So where does this leave us? Well, for some of you, you just need to hear, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to struggle with doubts. What you need not do is ever hold those inside and think you're the only one. Instead, learn to express those doubts, even bring those questions to God. This is what Job does consistently through this book. It's okay to question. It doesn't mean you don't have faith. Others of us, we really need to take a good long look inside and think about these friends, how they claim to speak for God, how they make such absolute certain pronouncements about why Job is suffering. This book is written to remind us to put a bookmark there, to, to, to hold on, to think about our limited understanding, and, and to know that we can't really see inside another person to judge that person. It's to put a clamp on when we, 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 when we think so confidently that we know why this person is suffering. Don't ever blame a victim. The third thing is I would say this, I've told you how not to be a friend in crisis. I've got four simple phrases on how to be a friend in crisis. One, show up. Two, shut up. Three, listen up. And then four, fess up. And by fess up, I mean what I do at funeral homes, what I do at, at, in, in the homes of people who are on hospice care and their loved one is dying, when I'm in the emergency room with someone's 11 or 12 year boy who's just gone through a terrible accident, I say, I don't know why any of this is happening, but I do know the one that we can look to because his heart is breaking with ours. And we pray and we pray, not because we know the answers, because we don't know the answers. What we need is not an answer. What we need is the answerer. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you that we've had this time to look at this treasure of a book, this book that's so old, as old as humanity, that asks the question, why do bad things happen to good people? There's so much for us to learn in this. I pray for anybody who's struggling with questions because life has not been easy. Life has been very difficult. And they've been up against challenges that have pushed them to the mat. And Lord, I pray that they would feel the encouragement from a man named Job who poured out in passion his questions to God and he found that God was enough even when he had no answer. I pray God for anybody that has a question that's made to feel inferior as if they don't have faith. 
as if they were somehow substandard to a normal Christian. That's not the case at all. All of us have questions. All of us have to struggle through different issues in life. What we have to do is bring our questions and lay them at your feet. God, I pray for all of us that in this time and in this day that we would listen and learn from Job's friends the lesson that we're supposed to learn. And that is not to be quick to judge, not to be quick to speak, not to be quick to think that I have an answer as to why the world is suffering, as to why we're going through COVID, as to why this person has lost this loved one, that God, we would put that in check and know that you're God and we're not. And God, I pray that we would be the kind of friends who would show up when someone was hurting, that we would shut up and not speak things that we don't know or understand, that we would listen to our people in pain, to let them pour out their heart to God, to be an advocate for them, to be a sounding board, to, to listen without judgment. And then God, to bring all of that pain to you, fessing up that we don't understand it, that we don't know the answer, but we do know the one that we need the most, and that's you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So please don't rush off right now. We're going to have a time of discussion right after the message. Thanks for being here. Plan on being with us Wednesday night. We're continuing our series in the Psalm. It's going to be a great time. God bless you. Wow, what a great message. Before we start our discussion, we just want to remind everybody that we'd love to hear your answers as the discussion progresses in the comments below. We also want to remind anybody that if you need prayer, a great way to let us know what to specifically be praying for you about is by texting the word prayer to 96995. That said, Josh, you want to take it from here? Thank you, Patrick. So glad to have you guys here this week. What a great time we're going to have. Get ready. There's three of us here, and today we're going to talk about friendship. And so I'd like to think by the end of our discussion, you guys might consider being friends with me, which would be awesome. There's always hope. There is always hope, and that's important to friendship. What's great is the Bible gives us examples of good friends and bad friends, and we see through the book of Job, there's some terrible examples of friends and uh, what friends should not be saying or how they should not behaving, be behaving. But I think there's a lot of good that the Bible offers about friendship and really just interacting with people with love. The golden rule is love your neighbor as yourself, and I think that applies to friendship. But King Solomon wrote, a ton about friendship wisdom. Uh, a friend loves at all times. A good friendship is a sweet blessing. It, it's just riddled through the Proverbs. So I think it's good for us to define friendship a little bit. So I'd love to know, I know you guys and myself included, our best friend is our spouse and we have great friendship foundations in our marriages. But uh, in addition to that, other friendships we may have, what are some of your favorite characteristics of those friendships? What does that look like? Um, I think it actually has uh, a lot in common with what you share with your spouse, which is authenticity, um, longevity. Um, mm. You know, I my longest lasting friendships are the ones I have now that I'm like, this is a lifelong person. I can tell this is a person. I They love me at all times, and they love me enough to tell me when I'm not being lovable. And I think <laughs> that's really valuable in a friend. I need that, and I need to be able to do that to them as well. So that's one I like. You know... Um, one of the fights that Hope and I continue to get in is the fact that she's not my best friend. Oof. I tell her that she's so much more than my best friend oh. and that everybody should have a best friend that's not their spouse. You're such a dear heart. I know. So, uh, but one of the things that I find very consistent in the friendships that I have, in fact, uh, what I would say my best friends is that there's 
two levels of friendship. The first one is the deepest Jesus talking. I'm going to encourage you when you need to encourage. I'm going to call you out when you be called out and spiritual mature side. And then the exact opposite where we can't stop talking about how dumb each other is or picking apart every single flaw. There's no middle ground to those types of friendships. And so I think that as you get to know somebody or develop, sometimes you walk that middle ground until you really get to know them and you know that this is how I need to help them and build them up and support them. And this is how I have fun with them. Mm. I think that word fun is vital to defining friendships because we define fun a little bit differently. Some people would say their best friends are the ones that they read books with and discuss. Some would say it's, oh, it's all the guys that I game with or gals that I game with, whatever it may be. I think solid friendships have fun together, but also they're willing to lean in and say, listen, you're, you're being unlovable. You're kind of being a brat right now. <laughs> and so I'm gonna let you cool off and we'll circle back. And I think marriage shows us a great example of that, but having those solid friendships outside of our marriage that can speak into us, encourage us individually, so huge. So I would also say that what great qualities you have in your marriage are, are gonna be amplified when you have them in your friendships as well. My best friend, other than Melissa, is actually just the male version of Melissa. The, <laughs> the more we learn and grow and We've yeah. both known each other. Like I met Melissa in 2007. I, I met Tyler in 2007, and we've just grown together. And anytime the Enneagram comes up, they're the same Enneagram. They're the same strengths, weaknesses, all that. So it's really cute to know that I have a type uh, in my in my best friendships. Can I just say I'm offended that I'm not your best friend? You're not the best friend. Well, and that you had to tell it publicly. I, yeah. Well, I've yes. Put you on front I will confess that in front of our entire audience that. We are still working toward that. You are definitely toward the top tier of nice. some of the better friends that I have on staff. Where does the rest of the staff fall? Can you rank us? Yes, I, you're all in the top 15 so far. Um, and then it just depends on the day, which is great. But so some of the characteristics of friendship, it's good to nail those down. How does that play out in your life? How do your friendships play out? How do you guys interact? What does loyalty look like? What is diligence, fun, all that? How do your friendships play out? Um, for me, I think it's, uh, I, I like spending time with my friends. That's a big deal to me. I, but at the same time, uh, if I have, once I have that connection with you, if we do have to be separated, that's okay. Because once I know you, I feel like I know you. And to me, that's a close friend that um, I can I can hear in their voice or they can hear in mine when we need something else. I think some of my best friends have helped grow my emotional maturity. Um, I hope that we do that for each other. When uh, Keith was speaking today and talked about uh, those that we're those guys, we are Job's friends. I think everybody maybe had people pop in their head like, oh, the know-it-all, the this, the other. But then I had this startling thought of, oh, gosh, who am I? to some people like who am i that person to somebody and so i think with your good friends um it's safe to ask that it's it's safe to be vulnerable with your friends i think that's a characteristic of good mm -hmm. friendship and then fun like you said is a big deal for me i need to enjoy being around you to be close to you right like i don't want to hang out with people i don't have fun with it's <laughs> a good point yeah um i think when it comes to friendships i think there's three real phases of a friendship. The first one is building a friendship. Second one is maintaining a friendship. And the third one is repairing a friendship. Mm -hmm. And to build a friendship, I think that's just a question of time and space. 
If you spend enough time in the same space as somebody, natural relationship is going to form. Uh, the um, social scientists say that it takes 40 hours from becoming an acquaintance to becoming an actual friend. Mm -hmm. And it takes 120 hours to go from a friend to a best friend. And so that's a lot of time and space around somebody. I think maintaining friendships is just knowing what the other person needs or wants and also knowing what you need and want. Because sometimes you can really, um, you can throw a relationship through a wrench if you don't know what you, you're yeah. wanting or needing out of a relationship. And the third one, repairing a friendship, um, that one's hard. I think that the Bible, especially Proverbs, has a lot to say about that. Um, some of the best advice I ever got about repairing a friendship, uh, Marcus Aurelius said that to never overlook a friend's offense, no matter how small it is to you. And, you know, if, if I'm being honest, I'm in the process of repairing a friendship with one of my best friends. And I don't have all the answers. Mm. The one thing that I come across and keep coming back to is, is forgiveness. That that repairing a relationship, the, the main ingredient you dump into that is just forgiving somebody. Yeah. yeah. Forgiveness is a staple for friendship. I think seeing that play out, it's hard. Uh, well, it's hard to admit the wrong. It's hard to yeah. not overlook the offense. That forgiveness step is huge. And I think when we think about friendships, there's absence makes the heart grow fonder or out of sight, out of mind. And right now we're in a season where a lot of our friendships are out of sight. And so some of them are becoming out of mind. I think even in establishing community, for us to live lives in community together, it means we're together, but it's so hard to be together right now. And so how do we rise above that out of sight, out of mind to be in that realm of, you know, I haven't seen this person in a long time and the long time, maybe two days. And you're just really craving that connection with that friend. So in the midst of this, uh, it generally in the midst of hardship or trial or in the midst of this season where we're socially distanced, how do we maintain friendships? How do we in, enhance our friendships? I, I think it takes effort, effort on both sides and want to on both sides. Um, like you said, the, you know, some of them are kind of falling away that out of sight, out of mind, but then others may be like, oh, I need this person. This is not just a, oh gosh, I miss them. Like, I'm different now because I haven't had that contact or I haven't had that conversation. So I think this is a time when we have to be really intentional more than ever about our friendships and how we're pursuing them and how we're thinking not just what I need, but what do they need? How can I be there for what my friend needs? Because it looks really different right now. So I think it's just a lot to do with your effort and reaching out and, and finding different ways to be together. Yeah. You know, I think before COVID, something that would always cause people anxiety is when you realize somebody didn't text you, but somebody called you <laughs> and you think, uh, do I answer this? I is this yeah. like a five minute call, a 30 minute call, <laughs> yeah. a Good 10 news, second bad call? News. Yeah. And I think if there's any silver lining to the COVID situation, I don't know if y'all are like me, but when I see somebody call, I'm 10 times more likely to answer them, just talk to them. I don't even need to know how long the conversation is because life has at, overall, especially socially, slowed down almost to a complete stop. And so one of the easiest ways to maintain relationships over distance is not rocket science. It's picking up a phone and calling somebody. And even if they don't, even if they don't pick up, leaving a voicemail, hey, don't have anything on my mind, just thinking about you, call me back when you can. And even that action in itself helps put some of that relational currency into a friendship. 
Yeah, that's huge. Taking that first step. A lot of us forget that there's an app on our phone for phone calls. It's like that that little green app with the white phone on it. That's what it does. You can make phone calls, and uh, we're we're all out of touch. We're we're missing out on those regular, you know, passing in the hallway conversations with a lot of people. So a little effort really does matter a ton. Yeah. And leaning in. Uh, a wise man woman once said, uh, if it's worth it, let me work it. <laughs> and so friendship to you, it, it's worth it. Your friendship, this connection worth is worth it. So you've yeah. got to work it. Yeah. And I think we get afraid in times of trial, like, oh, their mom's sick or, oh, they're going through job loss. Oh, they're going through illness, whatever. And we think, oh, I don't want to be a burden. I don't know what to say. But really, it's just just be there. Some of the best friendships, they know that their job is to show up and and not show up with the answers, but just show up. And that showing up may be using that phone call app on your phone or even just, hey, I'm texting you right now. Let's chat in an hour. I'm going to call. You don't have to answer, but I'm calling you. Yeah. Follow through with that commitment. So you show up. You don't have to say anything. Just listen and be honest with each other. Fess up is that other thing. I've done you wrong. I want you to know I've been holding this against you or I, that really bugged me. Being honest with each other is huge for friendship. And I think as we grow in this, we better model the love that God wants us to have amongst each other. Uh, scripture tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. And so friendship really is about making less of me and more of others. And we have the call to do that in our lives. So I'd like to think that we're all friends now. Um, I do miss seeing you guys every day. Uh, and it's weird sitting this far apart <laughs> all the time, I know. But I'd like to think people listening feel that connection when we're together on a weekend, on a weeknight, whatever it is. I want to encourage everyone to use your phone to make a call or text someone you haven't texted in a while because we don't want to get back to normal and not have any friends um, or just think, oh man, I really wish I would have checked in on you and yeah. I don't know why I forgot. So we've got to take a selfless moment and seek out our friends because it is worth it when we work it. Thank you guys so much for joining us on Friendship and we're excited for next week's conversation as well. Sounds good. Sounds good.